0: Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Well, it's great to be back with you and to have each of you here with us in person or joining us online. Well, we're continuing our series called AD30, which is basically another way of saying the life of Jesus Christ, and I've entitled our message today, Forgiven. It was 1937 in a little town called London or New London, Texas. Some say that that was the richest school district in the United States at that time, because much like parts of Alberta at that time, uh, major oil had been discovered in that region, and that was oil country in the US. Their high school football team, the Wildcats, played in the first stadium in Texas with electric lights. They had built a a beautiful new school just a few years before with that oil money, A large space was actually left under the new school because what they wanted to do was install a significant boiler and steam system. Like many of you, if you live in a condo or an apartment building, you'd have a boiler and steam system typically heating the whole building. That's what they were going to do in this Texas school. That boiler system was never installed. There was a great cavity under the whole school, but the boiler system was never installed. Instead, they put in 72 natural gas heaters. Big school, 72 different furnaces because gas was cheap, or gas was free. As you know up here, and there's laws that have been changing in Canada, Canada's very conservative, very restrictive on this issue, you can't waste natural gas off an oil well. Can't just light a fire and burn it off, you have to use it. So it was an oil field waste product back then. Plumbers would then tap into these free pipelines of natural gas, just a waste product from the oil fields, and they would then you know, install natural gas furnaces and get free natural gas. Natural gas in its created state is colorless and odorless. Unfortunately, it had leaked into this cavity under this Texas school. It had leaked under the school the whole length of the building, which was about 253 feet. It had been seeping into there for some time, was getting into the school as well. Kids were having headaches, but Couldn't smell natural gas, so nobody knew why. On March 18th, a teacher turned on an electric sander, probably in shop class, and it sparked. They say the explosion could be heard for miles, I believe four miles, you could hear this school blow up. The roof lifted off of the building before it came back down. There's a two-ton piece of concrete that was thrown a couple of hundred feet. There was incredible power in that explosion didn't stay lit. It wasn't really a fire, it just blew up and went out. But about 300 teachers and students died that day. Doctors, nurses, balmer's came from Dallas. Buildings and surrounding towns were turned into morgues. Walter Cronkite, this was early in Walter Cronkite's career. Many of you remember him. He covered it as one of his first assignments as a news anchor. He later covered World War II. He actually covered the Nuremberg Trials. And he said of this story in Texas, no story since that awful day equaled it. Today, when you have a natural gas leak in your house, you know about it immediately. Because you smell it. Kind of a rotten egg smell, sulfur. See, after London, Texas... Gas was infused intentionally with smelly chemicals like sulfur so that we would know when there's danger because it then drives us to recognize the emergency before it kills us. We might have a detector go off, or we're a detector. We smell this smell. We've been taught as children, hey, that's natural gas. That's a leak. Call somebody. Guilt is sort of like our spiritual sulfur, Now, there's a couple of kinds of guilt. There's positional guilt, which means you did something naughty, you're guilty. That's positional guilt. Whether you feel it or not, you broke a rule, you feel, there's guilt. There's also affective guilt. Affective guilt is sort of the guilt feeling. It's how our conscience functions. A guilty conscience accompanies our bad choices. When we feel guilt and we've legitimately done something wrong and we're being convicted for it, what that means is Praise God, everything's working. It means you're working the way God intended you to work. It's God's additive, this affective guilt is God's additive to our natures through our consciences so that we deal with sin and find forgiveness before we allow it to destroy us. That's what guilt does for us. And sin does harm us. It does destroy us, all of us at some level. It's not another group of people that sin and we don't. Michael Shermer, publisher of Skeptic Magazine, probably not exactly an evangelical Christian, author of The Science of Good and Evil writes, I once had the opportunity to ask Thomas Keneally, author of Schindler's List, what he thought of the difference between Oskar Schindler, rescuer of Jews and hero of this story, and Amon Golf, the Nazi command- commandant of the uh, Plaz- Lazo concentration camp. Sorry if I mispronounced that. His answer was revealing. You got Schindler, who's saving Jews, and you've got this other guy named Goth, who's literally murdering Jews. And he says, What's the difference between these two individuals? He said, Not much. Had there been no war, Mr. Schindler and Mr. Goth might have been drinking buddies and business partners, morally obtuse, perhaps, but relatively harmless. What a difference a war makes, especially to the moral choices that lead to good and evil. Schirmer goes on to quote Russian writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us. That's what we wanna do is take the evil people, we'll put them in a spot, we're gonna destroy them, and then we're gonna be all morally and ethically pure. He said, but the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy peace of his own heart? Isn't that true? How much in all of us we struggle with things we shouldn't think we would struggle with, especially as Christ followers. We find evil within us. We find a willingness to do things or consider doing things we really should be beyond. See, sin resides in all of us, and even if we're Christians and we're following Jesus, we still find temptations and sort of the flesh or the old nature, and it's got to be dealt with. Now we can argue, as maybe secularists would, that values and ethics are matters of environment. Because if you, if you don't believe in a God, you've got to explain why do people feel guilty? Why do people think there's anything wrong? Because if there is no God, there is no lawgiver. how would we ever come to a common view of ethics? And that's a really good question, actually. So we can argue that values and ethics are matters of environment or nurture from families in a godless, materialistic, naturalistic world where there is no God. Maybe our ethics just come because we had a mom and dad who believed certain things were right and certain things were wrong. We should ignore the voice of conscience. There really is no right and wrong, that's one view. Or we can hope and believe that there must be something that's true. We can hope that forgiveness can be found in some sort of religion. Although all different religions claim to, be ex- claim to be exclusive and claim that they're the only true way to the true God, maybe people who are religious believe I can find forgiveness in any religion. The problem is, logically, there really can only be one true God. And if there's only one true God, all these other false gods can't really offer forgiveness. So I think what makes the most sense is search for the true God among those competing religions Because ultimately, at the end of the day, and David writes about this in the Psalms, sin is first and foremost against God. So David, when he wrote that, he says, against you and you only have I sinned. So David says to God, I've only sinned against you. And he says this right after committing two capital crimes. He's had an affair with Bathsheba, and he decides to sort of clear up the mess by having her husband killed at a battlefront. And then he marries her, and By the time that's over, in a theocracy in the Old Testament, he should have been stoned for two different things. And yet after that, he says to God, against you and you only have I sinned, because David recognized what is true is that we can sin horizontally. We can sin against our brothers and sisters in the human family, but at the end of the day, sin is against God. That's why it's sin, because we've offended the ethics and standards of a perfect moral being. How do we get forgiveness? Well, that brings us to our topic today. I want you to turn to Luke chapter five. I believe you have Bibles back in front of you there, don't you? All right, Luke chapter five should be on page 48. Should be on page 48. So where the New Testament starts, it starts the numbering over again. So the last third of your pew Bibles, page 48, Luke chapter five. We're gonna read beginning in verse 17. One day, he, Jesus, was teaching, and he had an interesting crowd there. He's drawn in all the religious leaders now. There were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. And some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were trying to bring him in and set him down in front of him, Jesus, but not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, Answered and said to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins have been forgiven you, or to say, get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your stretcher, go home. Immediately he got up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. They were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God, and they were filled with fear, saying, we've seen remarkable things today. And after that, he went out, oh, I'm sorry, next story, next week. Just three simple points. First, only the true God can forgive sin. That's sort of the point of the passage is, Is Jesus God? Can he forgive sin? Only the true God can forgive sin. As I was talking about those options before, if sin is primarily against a lawgiver, if we have any ethics in this world, there must be a lawgiver ultimately if something is really morally wrong. It's not something that's arbitrary that we decide. If there is a God and he's created us and he runs the universe, he's the lawgiver. And any offense against him can only be forgiven through him. Now, this is actually an early face-off between Jesus and the religious leaders. It's kind of a big deal. Jesus has grown in popularity. He's gathered most, but not all of his disciples. It took some time, and I haven't realized that. Now we're preaching through more of the life of Christ. We see the, the, the breaks in time between when he called the first ones and then the next group, and finally Matthew near the end. So Jesus has some of his disciples. He's gathering them. He didn't all do it in a couple of days. He's got most of them, He just healed a leper a little while before in this region, and he told that leper, that disobedient leper, to stay quiet. In other words, I'm gonna heal you, but keep it on the low down. And that leper was having nothing to do with it. I mean, Jesus had changed his life. He was having to go down the streets or stay out of towns, and when he went near people, he'd have to cry out unclean to warn people. He had this contagious disease. So Jesus has healed this man, he's changed his life. He told the man to stay quiet, that man wasn't, he was a one-person church growth committee. I mean, he was out there telling everybody what Jesus did for him, so Jesus got more and more popular. And it says in Mark chapter two, verse one, in the same story here, he's staying at home. Now, Jesus wasn't from that town, we know that. So everyone assumes, scholars assume, home is now the house of probably Peter and Andrew. So he's staying at home. Staying with Peter and Andrew in their house. The leper has made a mess of Jesus, you know, sort of keeping on the lowdown. He's been tweeting and Snapchatting and Facebooking all of his friends. Jesus is getting a crowd wherever he goes. He's hiding in the house just about. He's up. Everyone knows he heals. Now it's a party. Everybody with every kind of issue wants a piece of Jesus. People are coming from surrounding towns. People are coming from that region. People have had lifelong illnesses. People have been paralyzed. People who were paralyzed from birth. People have been in accidents. People who were lepers. People who couldn't see. They're all coming to Jesus. He's the miracle man, and he's done it before. He can do it again. Religious leaders have now heard about this stuff as well. And if you look at the paragraph at the beginning of that passage, it's a big deal, and he is getting people from everywhere. It says, every town in Galilee and Judea, People are making the three-day trip. Religious leaders are making the three-day, one-way trip to get to where Jesus is, to sort of check him out and make sure that he is orthodox, that he's legitimate, because they're sort of the truth police. Jerusalem was represented, the center of religious thought, three days away. The orthodoxy police are here. So Jesus is now teaching with what I would say is the most important audience to date. They're packed in a tiny house, not like the show Tiny House, but they're packed in a small house, possibly one room in that culture. And on the top of the house, you'd have a very slight slope, you know, maybe a 212, 312 pitch, and it's got beams all going one direction, and then in between the beams you would pack maybe sticks, the other direction, maybe some thatch. You had a little more money, you put tiles over that, like clay tiles and that keeps the rain out. There's a short stairwell to the roof. You might go up on the roof to repair it. Maybe since you only live in a one-room house with no electricity, you went up on the roof to sit in the evening, I don't know. Four men from somewhere in that region had a paralyzed friend. We don't know exactly the backstory. We don't know if this was from birth or if he'd been in a terrible accident. They've heard the rumors about Jesus. They have hope. I mean, this is the first time in years they have hope that their friend can be healed. So they're like, hey, Jesus is at Peter and Andrew's. We are taking our friend to him. Uh, this This is a possibility. I mean, Jesus has healed a leper recently. We know about that. They get a stretcher. They make a stretcher. They walk, perhaps a long ways, carrying the poles in that stretcher, and they get to the home of Jesus, which, again, is probably Peter and Andrew's house. It's packed out into the street. They thought they'd be early enough. They weren't. Other people beat them to it. But they wouldn't be denied, and it's not easy getting a man on a stretcher to Jesus when there's hundreds of people outside of this house, and they've been there first, so they get around to the back side of the house. There was typically a little stairwell to the top of these homes. Not easy getting a man on a stretcher up a one-story building with an old rickety staircase. They had ropes or they got ropes. They lifted him to the roof. They start digging through the roof of somebody else's house. I mean, imagine this. I mean, Jesus is there teaching with the most important religious people in that country at the time, checking on him, and all of a sudden there's there's dust coming down, there's straw coming down, they're hearing noise up there. One of the Pharisees says to Jesus, I think there's a raccoon in the attic. It, it's, it's in there. It's, it's in the Greek. And this continues, and all of a sudden, they see it breaking open. I, 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 I'm sure there are people who are mad. I'm wondering if Jesus is sort of snickering eventually. I don't know. I mean, what do you say? You've got to admire the effort. They're taking the roof apart. And here comes this man, desperate for help. His accident or his malady and lost him his career. Maybe he was a beggar, we don't know. There wasn't much to do if you were paralyzed in that culture, and there wasn't a lot of help from society monetarily. So these four men lower their friend to Jesus. Now I'm not saying we have all the words from that conversation, because I don't assume that in Bible passages, we have summaries in many cases, but I do believe the order is accurate because this is the point of the story. Jesus doesn't say to the man, you know, what do you need? And yes, I can heal you. He doesn't say you're healed. He says, your sins are forgiven. Well, only God can do that. Only one God can actually say that, whoever is the true God. Not the gods behind a 100 Greek and Roman myths in that culture. The actual moral lawgiver of the universe in his created world, he's the only one who can do that. So the religious leaders who are the orthodoxy police are not happy. I mean, they're maybe open to the fact that Jesus, even though he didn't come from the right schools, he doesn't necessarily come from the right part of town, there's some questions about his origins, if you know what I mean. That old Joseph and Mary thing Had some questions. They weren't afraid to bring it up. But maybe he's the Messiah. The Messiah they had studied, however, in the Old Testament had no ability to forgive sins. Messiah can't forgive sins. Messiah isn't God. Now, we know, looking back as Christians, there were hints of it in the Old Testament that Messiah would be God. They didn't see that and they didn't believe that. He was not God. This is a carpenter from Nazareth. Isn't this Joseph's son? He's not God, or is he? Jesus makes this point. Number two, the authority demonstrated in one area is evidence of divine authority over all areas or other areas. This is a critical part of sort of the logic of why Jesus did miracles. I mean, Jesus is actually making the point without saying it, this is why I do miracles. So you'll see me for who I actually am. So in verse 21, the scribes and Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Because to say you forgive sin is a blasphemy because you're claiming to be God. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus, aware of their reasoning, answered and said to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins have been forgiven or get up and walk? In other words, if I'm God, one is as easy as the other. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic now, I say to you, get up, pick up your stretcher, and go home. And he did. And Jesus is making the point, I can tell him to get up, I can tell him your sins are forgiven, and I'll explain why those things were connected in a moment. It's a little bit like an argument from the lesser to the greater. If I can do one thing, then I can do similar, more impossible things. You know, If I'm capable of healing, I'm capable of forgiving because only God can really do all these things. If I'm capable of forgiving, I'd be capable of healing. Same thing. The argument would work either direction. Because forgiveness and miracles are both sort of godlike or divine activities. Not just anyone can pull that off. I wish I could, I'm not God. You wish you could, you're not God. We recognize miracles reflect a nature in a person that's different than us, it's God. One who can forgive would be able to heal, one who can heal should be able to forgive because God does both of those things. They're God-like abilities. As are, if you wanna bring in the broader context of Jesus' life, authority over the forces of nature. Authority over the forces of evil, demon possession. Authority over death, where he raises people from the dead multiple times in his ministry, even before his own resurrection. Similar types of miracles, I would say. The virgin birth, countless fulfillments of Old Testament prophecies. Some made thousands of years before, most of them 400 to 2,000 years before Jesus is born. Some say over 400 prophecies about what he would be like and who he would be from the Old Testament. All of those things show his divine origin. And Jesus, in this story, is having a deity coming out event without saying the words, I am God. He is saying, I am God. He didn't have to say it though. He didn't need to say it. The religious leaders had already made the logical conclusion that he wanted them to make. Only God can forgive sins. He's claiming to forgive sins. Therefore, he's claiming to be God. Well, now we've got a problem. They're in charge of the orthodoxy for the whole country. I mean, they're kind of in charge indirectly of the whole synagogue and temple system. Unfortunately, Jesus had them trapped in a way that you might not realize. He had them trapped intellectually by their own belief system, and here's how. He really had them. This is almost funny. The religion of Jesus' day, the religion of the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, connected sin and suffering very closely. All right, we don't do that. If, if you get sick, I don't come to you and say, hey, brother, what did you do wrong? What, how did you offend God? So let's confess that first, and maybe you'll feel better tomorrow. We don't say that because we recognize that sin in our world has sort of broken the whole system, and a lot of our sickness has nothing to do with our personal choices. I mean, it can you know, if, if you want to down, you know, 64 ounces of vodka every day, you're probably going to have a liver issue. And if you're talking to me as your pastor, I'd say, you know what? we probably got to solve your alcoholism on the way to getting better. So it's both forgiveness and healing. But most of our sicknesses have nothing to do with our choices. Most of our sickness is because we just live in a broken world and the world is broken, every part of it's broken, it's why we have sickness and death. But not back then, back then they connected the two very closely, so here's the deal. It was assumed that the paralyzed man deserved it, okay? That was their thinking. It was assumed by every religious person in that room that this paralyzed man or his parents did something wrong and this was God's justice at work. So it kind of limited their empathy, by the way. You know, it's like, you know, the disciples saw somebody sick, they're like, who sinned, this man or his parents? Not like, hey, how are you? Like, no, who who, who sinned? Because God's clearly, you know, striking them. It wasn't a very empathic environment. So it's assumed he deserved it. It would also be assumed then that he can't be healed, since he deserved it, he can't be healed without the sin issue also being dealt with. If he's sick because he's sinned, if he's paralyzed because he's sinned, he's not going to become unparalyzed unless he gets forgiven. Doesn't that make logical sense? That's what they're thinking. He can't be healed without forgiveness. Now, Jesus didn't believe that, but they believed it, and so he has got them stuck in a way that they are just going to hate, but there's no way out. So Jesus takes advantage of this little theological problem. And he addresses both. So which is easier? To say to this dude, rise up and walk, or your sins are forgiven? Because all of you Pharisees, not you guys, all you Pharisees believe that they're totally connected. So which one should I do? Rise up and walk, or your sins are forgiven. According to you, we need both. Either way, he did what only God can do once he mentions forgiveness, because only God can forgive. And so he said to the man, Okay, I'll have it your way. Rise up and walk. Assuming forgiveness must take place as well. And he had said earlier, Your sins are forgiven. The man got up, hadn't walked in who knows how many years, and he was having a good day. The authority demonstrated in one area is evidence of divine authority over all areas. The reason, this is the sad part about the scriptures today, it really is, because we live in a materialistic world, and I don't mean materialism like you buy too much at Christmas. I mean, we live in a world where material and natu- materialism and naturalism explain everything. In other words, there is no God. Everything is, has a material or natural cause. Therefore, when people look at the scriptures, the very thing that is meant for them to give proof for God, miracles, is explained away. No, miracles can't happen. They don't happen in a materialistic, naturalistic world. Wait a minute. That's, those are God's fingerprints into history so that we know he is God. We can't explain it away and say it can't happen. That's how we know it was him. That's how we know. You get somebody performing miracles right and left, I mean, I'm in the crowd, I want to know. That was the whole point of what Jesus did. It's the whole point of the virgin birth. Well, not the whole point of the virgin birth. To avoid sin is the issue there at some level, but but the whole point of of Jesus' miracles is is so that we would see there's a difference between him and us, and yet in our rationalistic 21st century minds, we can't accept miracles, so we just take this book and say it can't be true. Well, how was God supposed to come into history and prove himself to you then? You want just a regular dude who's smart? I'll take a miracle worker. Third, an extreme claim gets an extreme response, as it should. So I know the Pharisees are the bad guys. The Pharisees are always the bad guys. But I've got to tell you, I've studied the Pharisees. They started out as some pretty good dudes. They were really trying to do the right thing. They just wanted everyone to obey the law so God would bless their country. Now they got a little carried away with it and created about you know, you know, twenty or thirty or 40,000 extra rules. But hey, nonetheless, they had a good heart at first. I want to look at the three reactions to Jesus in this text. And and I respect where the Pharisees are coming from. We don't want God imposters out there, do we? So you get three reactions. The paralyzed man was healed, and he went home glorifying God. Well, that one's kind of expected. Dude can walk, pretty happy. The broader crowd had a similar response. They're glorifying God, they're filled with fear, kind of in a good way, sort of awe, like, wow, we have seen some incredible things today. And what's interesting is that's what they said. We've seen some incredible things. We've seen remarkable things today, verse 26. Now, what's interesting for scholars who are smarter than me, but I read about them a little bit, the word today is what's used actually in chapter four, verse 21, when Jesus is announcing that he is bringing the kingdom of God to earth, he reads an Old Testament passage about Messiah and then says, today chapter 4 verse 21 this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing and some people are saying luke is referencing that when he says a chapter later we've seen remarkable things today like the kingdom of god is here the king is here but note the reaction of the religious leaders who is this man who speaks blasphemy Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Now, you need to understand where they're coming from and what they're prepared to do. Do you know what the next step is? If they're really being good orthodoxy police, arrest him, take him out where there's a lot of loose limestone, and kill him. That would have been the law. Now, probably they should go through a formal trial, but this group wasn't real great at that, as we learned a couple years later. Anyway, They're supposed to arrest him. He's committing a capital crime, and the death penalty is meant to be its natural outcome. But let's just park where they're at for a second. Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? This is perfectly rational. Let's not be too hard on them. If you find somebody running around Calgary today saying, son, I forgive all your sins. Daughter, bless you, I forgive your sins. What's your natural thought? Institutionalize that dude. He's got a problem. He's got a God complex. Send them to Aaron, that's his area. <laughs> Make Aaron come in on a weekend. If you you've got God down at the hospital on the south side of town, you're on call. Go, go give him something. That's how we would react. Let's not be too hard on the Pharisees. Who is he who blasphemes? Jesus shouldn't be getting any breaks here. And the reason I'm saying this is because much of Christianity gives Jesus a break here because they don't believe he's God. They believe he's just a good dude who was a good teacher who's worth following. And here's what I would say to that. If Jesus is not God, shame on him for lying to his followers, for deceiving millions and billions of people, for being so self-deluded, for creating false hope, for substituting himself for whoever we should be following. Shame on Jesus of Nazareth. If he is not God, he is not worth Sunday morning. I have no interest in liberal Christianity that believes Jesus isn't divine, and yet it's worth it coming to church and listening to everything the lunatic said who thought he was God. But if he is God worship him, follow him, give him your life. That's the difference. We've got an absolute nut job or we have got God in the flesh who came to rescue us and tell us how to be rescued and can forgive our sins and give us the reason we were put here in the first place. And I hate to tell you this, but there's no in between. So pick a side. There's no in between. Now, you might say, well, I, I, I kind of like Jesus either way, even if he's not God, he kind of gives me some warm fuzzies and I would follow him. Well, that's fine for you, but I like the NFL more on Sundays. I don't want to follow a guy who doesn't know who he is. Do you, do you really want to follow a guy who doesn't know who he is and thinks he's God? I want to send him to Aaron. But if he's God and he proved it he deserves everything i am and have so he did heal the man and hundreds and thousands of others while well, he walked the planet so maybe he's exactly who he says three thoughts as we close first Who am I desperately carrying toward Jesus? Just a few apps here. Who am I desperately carrying towards Jesus? Now this isn't the point of Luke chapter five. The point of Luke five is not about the four dudes, it's not. That's not the authorial intent. The point is Jesus coming out as the forgiver of sins and deity. But, you gotta admire these four dudes, I love them. I love them. I mean, Just imagine what's going on in the days surrounding this. All right guys, our friend needs help. Guys, turn off the TV. Turn off, turn it off. Turn off your computer. Put your cell phone away. Our friend needs help. Jesus is healing people. We've got him in our town. We don't know how long he's going to be here. We know where he's staying. Joel was just down there. He's peeking through the window. He's at Peter and Andrew's house. We know there's going to be competition. There's going to be a crowd. So let's get up early. Let's get our friend there. All right. Everyone, everyone in on three. One, two, three, miracle! All right, I mean, that's what these guys are doing. Something like that. Sorry, I lost some of you. So the next day they get up. They're there early. They're carrying him. They're lifting him up to a roof. They're digging a hole through somebody else's house. They don't care what happens to them. I kind of love, I want to be a part of that group that's kind of breaking some laws. Some laws but for the good reason, you know. I mean, you know, God will forgive it. It wasn't a big deal, you know, tear through somebody's house. They are on the edge of the wrong, you know. They're breaking into somebody's house. They're tearing through the roof. There's no insurance. They're dropping Jesus in front of a whole religious crowd because they desperately care about their friend and they will not be stopped. So just as an aside, it's not what the passage is teaching, but it's a question. Do we do that? Is that in our DNA? Do we do whatever it takes to to carry others towards Jesus? Because that's the DNA of our faith, is if, if he's not just a dude, if he's really God... You, you need to know him. If if eternity is on the line, you need to know him. The whole world needs to know him. It's what we are. Who am I desperately carrying towards Jesus? And if you don't have a mental list, make one. Get in people's lives, develop relationships. You don't have to be obnoxious, and you don't have to be weird. Jesus is a part of your life. Second, what have I done with Jesus' ultimate claim? And somebody else wrote about this, so I'm not trying to plagiarize here. I'm quoting somebody else, but there was this work done by some you know, evangelical scholar, liar, lunatic, or Lord, and those really are the options, okay? Jesus is either a great liar because he knew he wasn't God, and he deceived, now I'd say, about two billion people, or he's a lunatic, which means he actually isn't lying, he actually thinks he's God, but he's not, send him to Aaron, you know, there's that side of him. Okay, lunatic, he, he's just like crazy. Or, the miracles prove it, the history proves it, the fulfillment of prophecy proves it, he's actually God. He really is. in in this pluralistic world, where you can't say this anymore, we have found the truth, not just what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me, even though they disagree. No, the truth of God who came into this world as a fulfillment of prophecy, we found him. Is that your view of him? What have you done with Jesus' ultimate claim? Third, what have I done with my sin and guilt? So remember how we were saying guilt is sort of the sulfur in our souls that helps us to spell out when something's broken. Flatliners, great movie, the original one. There's been another one since then. Kiefer Sutherland was you know, the guy in 24. You know what? I'm going to stop it because you guys don't watch enough movies, so I know you don't know what I'm talking about. Flatliners was a movie about five medical students in Chicago who are curious about what occurs to people who flatline so their heart and brain activity cease, and then they're resuscitated, So these would-be doctors, these are five people in medical school, they decide to induce near-death experiences by ingesting an anesthetic and stopping their hearts with electric paddles. So this is the movie. Five medical students saying, what really happens after we die? Hey, let's do an experiment. So they get some medical equipment, you know, they get in some old room on campus, and they put each other into an induced death. Sneaking into a vacant building... To keep this illegal activity from being discovered, they take turns flatlining. And after being technically dead for three or four minutes, they attempt to bring each other back. In the process of dying and returning, each of the students is sensitized to the unconfessed sins of their past. And in each case, they describe nightmarish visions while they're unconscious. that convince them the afterlife is not a figment of their imaginations. So each one of them, as they go under and they're trying to stand there longer and longer to experience more of this, And then they start having sort of like nightmares of things they've done that remain undealt with. The sulfur of their souls comes to the surface in the afterlife. In Kiefer Sutherland's case, Nelson's case, his brush with death, he travels back 20 years to a meadow where he and his dog chased a little boy up a tree and taunted him. The limb broke and the child fell to his death. He's been carrying that his whole life. Having relived the tragedy, he's walking down the street in Chicago, downtown Chicago, in a rainy pre-dawn darkness, and his mind plays tricks on him, and his guilt causes what is real and what is imaginary to blur, and that was the problem. He started having nightmares. They couldn't tell reality from fiction. The sound of cyclists riding by him startles him, and he, he walks into a dark alley and sees faces of street people who look up at him with searing glances and One of the people's a homeless woman who's warming herself by a fire and she's muttering to herself and her words are disconnected. They don't make any sense. But when he walks past her, she looks directly at him and calls him by name. And then with obvious sarcasm, she says things he already feels in his heart. She says to him, because in the end, we all know what we've done. It's a really spooky movie. You should watch it. And he runs away. And these five secular medical students who are experimenting with life after death experience in fiction what we know is real. That when sin is not dealt with, it is a part of who we are. It does remain unforgiven. So when you're alone with your thoughts, your greatest mistakes, your greatest regrets, I ask you, What have you done with them? Where are you going to take them? What do you do with them? Because as a person made in the image of God who faces a moral being who created you, you're responsible for your choices. And unless you've dealt with your sins with a perfect and holy God, you carry them. Jesus claims the ability to forgive. His miracles authenticate that he had the right to say that. And the way we take advantage of his offer of forgiveness is to recognize who he said he was was true and believe in him as son of God, savior, what he did on the cross when he died. He paid the penalty for our sins. That satisfied God's wrath, the Father's wrath for our sins. It's why Jesus died. He died for us. He was our substitute we accept him as Son of God, Savior, and Lord. If he is the Son of God and He died on the cross for me, and He has the right to call the shots in my life, I want to follow Him. If you've never dealt with your sin that way, I want to give you the opportunity to do that right now. To just pray a prayer that I'm going to put up on the screen here. There's nothing magical about the words in this prayer. What is unique is that this is the way that we connect with God and find forgiveness. It's our faith, and this prayer simply reveals that act of faith that we have to have in our hearts to know that we've embraced Jesus as Son of God, Savior, and Lord. If you've never done that and you're open to that, I would encourage you in your heart of hearts just to pray this silently as I pray it out loud. Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God. I believe you died and rose again, paying the penalty for my sin in your death and in your resurrection, paving the way to eternal life. You are the one who can forgive. Come into my life as Savior and Lord. I want to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the Bible teaches that As simple as it sounds, when we have a point of faith in our lives and we really believe that Jesus is Son of God, Savior, and Lord, and we commit to following him, that is the point at which we have a spiritual transformation that begins. Where God comes into our life. Before that, we were pre-Christian. After that, we are Christ followers. And the sin issue has been dealt with. We'll still fail. We're still going to sin but the ultimate sin issue that separates us from God has been dealt with, and he now is the forgiver of our souls. God, we thank you for your word. I pray that every one of us would deal with this most important issue, that we would hopefully believe the evidence you gave us. What a blueprint you gave us to to know as you walk this earth, the footprints of your life, three years of history, not all of it, but enough of it to know that You are unique. You did unique things to prove that you were not just a miracle worker, but the one who could forgive sins. Help us to search for you, to find you, to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click come. Thanks again and God bless you.